It's the Save Democracy Podcast. I'm Steve Goldstein. Welcome to our inaugural edition. Our mission on this podcast is to talk about Arizona's current primary system, what other states, including Nevada and Alaska, are doing to change theirs, and what Arizona voters would ultimately benefit most from. 2022 was supposed to be a banner year for Republicans across the country, and especially in Arizona, where the midterms often present an opportunity for the GOP to expand on its registration advantage over Democrats. But as more voters become disenchanted with party politics and re-register as independents, the selection of statewide nominees and the issues they emphasize is becoming even more vital. So after eight years of Governor Doug Ducey on the ninth floor, we'll have Democrat Katie Hobbs taking over in January. Adrian Fontes had lost his most recent November battle, attempting to be re-elected as Maricopa County recorder, but emerged with a healthy victory over Mark Fincham to become the next Secretary of State. And pending a mandatory recount, Chris Mays is poised to become Attorney General, giving Democrats a clean sweep of Arizona's top three statewide offices, something that would have seemed unfathomable when 2022 began. Would a different primary system have led to nominees from both parties that appealed to a broader base of Arizonans? Would that have led to Republican candidates moving past false claims of fraud in the 2020 election and focusing on issues that a healthy majority of the state cared about? Chuck Coughlin, president and CEO of political consulting firm High Ground, answers those questions for me. Coughlin was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican who worked closely with former governors Five Symington and Jan Brewer and the late Senator John McCain. But the emergence of Donald Trump led Coughlin to figuratively tear up his GOP membership card and become an independent. So I began our conversation by asking Coughlin whether the problem for the GOP in 2022 in Arizona was the candidates or something else. Well, I think it had a lot to do with that. I think we're we're seeing um, that there was perhaps some Republican underperformance in the cycle, which would show that there wasn't an enthusiasm that the top of the ticket captured with the pers- with the percentage of the Republicans that ought to turn ought to have turned out, and that's a significant thing because in a down cycle, in an off cycle election, in a presidential cycle, you typically see you know, higher Republican turnout. And what we're seeing uh, preliminarily is that that may have been impacted uh, by the quality of candidates in this cycle. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, two election deniers at the top of the ticket who, uh, you know, both in the Senate candidate and particularly in the gubernatorial candidate, we know that's not a popular issue. We've tested that. We know that's not a popular issue with the general electorate, with a broad section of the electorate. Most of them don't believe it. So, you're, you're trying to sell somebody they don't believe in, that sell, sell somebody an idea they don't believe in, and telling them if you're not on the team, get off the team. Well, as Haley Barber used to say, uh, the former RNC chairman and governor of Mississippi, politics is the art of addition, not subtraction. And they, that lesson seemed to be lost on them. How big an impact did independents ultimately have in the general election? And did they outperform what you may have expected? Our preliminary analysis tells us that they did, that they overperformed. We were we were talking about a you know 24 percent of the electorate being um, unaffiliated, and we think it's upwards of 26, 28, um, and we saw margins uh, in that uh, of early voters um, that were breaking, you know, two to one. Uh, for the Democratic candidate, uh, again, which would be a sign of disenchantment by those unaffiliated voters. And, you know, that this is their cycle to play in. Uh, and as we know, they're the ones that determine the outcome of an election because 
you, you, you have to win in Arizona in order to win a statewide election. You have to win a majority of unaffiliated voters. How big a difference could unaffiliated voters make in a different sort of primary system? When we see what kind of impact they have in November, what kind of impact could they have had in August? I mean, that's the aspirational question is, you know, we have these two very polarized parties and you have a segment of the electorate growing um, that is not happy, apparently, by the choices that they're being given. And, you know, it's very difficult for them uh, to participate in a primary right now. Many of them, you have to request one ballot or the other. So you're, you're having to deny your identity and saying, I want your ballot or your ballot. Uh, and then most importantly, from a candidate perspective, it's impossible to run. You can't run an unaffiliated candidacy because you're required to collect four times, six times the amount of signatures, and then you're not allowed to be on that primary ballot. You know, it's a it's a closed taxpayer funded primary just for Democrats, just for Republicans. And you'd want to have a competitive election where if you want to be an unaffiliated candidate, you want to create a choice for people. You want to be able to give them that choice. Uh, that you can't do it in a primary. It's a, and it's publicly financed with taxpayer money. So it's just patently wrong. Is this a wake-up call for the GOP in Arizona? Well, I mean, if they choose to take it, I don't think they're going to take it. I mean, I, I think they're going to ignore it um, and they're going to buckle down and they're going to go back to their roots of believing what they believe. And, you know, they they are not a big tent party. I came out here in in 1985 and 86 to work for john mccain because he was a big tent guy he talked about opportunity he talked about you know all i want to do is create opportunity for people i don't want to exclude people i want to create better economic opportunities for people and that was an attractive message to me because my perception was that you know there's a lot of people in the way you know you got clicks you got you know how do i you know through a good education program through training, um, vocational training, um, through uh, tax policy, um, through government-sponsored programs. What am I doing to create better opportunity for everybody? And that was McCain's mantra. And that's, that's, that doesn't exist anymore in the political cycle. It's not just, it's, it's exclusionary. Both sides has become exclusionary. I'm for my people and you're for your people and not, ne- neither the twain shall meet. Well, in this case, because Republicans underperformed, you know, again, maybe because of the candidates, should there be a postmortem of sorts? Or does this go back to what you just said, is that they probably should have a postmortem, but they probably won't have one? I mean, they always have, Steve. It's always been the history that when you lose, you go back and you look internally. Um, Trump's changed that. Trump's changed that into a victim narrative that, you know, he's a victim and so he's not allowing the Republicans to look at themselves and say, hey, what did we do wrong here? Um, he's, he's saying, no, I was victimized. So it prevents that inward looking view of, you know, how can we do better? Um, and, and Democrats are subjected to same, some of the same challenges when they lose because they go back to their roots of saying, well, we needed to be more extreme. We needed to be more righteous in our position. You know, and, you know, what our what my faith teaches us is, you know, you got to look inside and you got to say, what can I do better? How can I be a better person? What can I do better? And our electorate doesn't behave that way anymore. It, it, it behaves very self-righteously and very exclusionary. And, you know, the way we run elections is not healthy. 
So how long does this cycle continue potentially if there aren't dramatic changes in the system? Well, I'm fascinated by the 24 cycle. I, I, and I don't know the answer to the following question. What is Kirsten Cinema going to do? You know, she, she has tried to navigate a very independent space as a U.S. senator um, and, and angered much of her party base. And so does she get a primary opponent and does she choose to run in that primary on an uphill race against a well-funded primary opponent who's more appealing to those more partisan voters or does she choose to run as an independent? Um, and that's a hard, you know, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, you ought to be free to do that and not be punished. And we shouldn't have a primary that elects one guy and a primary that elects another guy. Everybody, in my view, ought to be on the same ballot. So we're all choosing. Everybody's on the same ballot. But if Cinema chooses to do that, she's going to have to collect six times the amount of signatures in order to put her name on the ballot. And then she's not on the primary. It's not the same choice that she'll be faced with. She'll be faced in this closed party primaries and two nominees from either party. And she'll be trying to pick off the remnants of both parties and unaffiliated voters. Whereas if she's on the primary ballot, if she's able to be there and you had an open election, you'd have a very interesting and vigorous contest as to who's going to succeed. And then we could choose who the best one is after that. The man in charge of high ground here in Phoenix, Chuck Coughlin. Chuck, thanks as always. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure talking to you. And that'll do it for this edition of the Save Democracy podcast. To hear this again or to learn more information about the Save Democracy effort in Arizona, please go to the website, savedemocracyaz.com. I'm Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening.